David Spada is a successful attorney whose dream was to become a sports talk show host. Elliot Harris is a Chicago sports columnist who wanted to expand his media presence. In the next hour, they combine their talents and love of sports and women by interviewing former professional athletes and lovely ladies on sports and torts. But keeping the boys out of trouble isn't always easy because when David and Elliot are together, they have more fun than should be legal. Welcome to another edition of Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. I'm Elliot Harris. And I'm David Spader. we got another great show today. Yeah. Don't we always? We're running out of Hall of Fame football coaches to interview. I don't think so. I think we got a couple of them on the show today, as a matter of fact. We have Lou Holtz, who coached at a zillion schools. Just say he was a Notre Dame head coach. Okay. That's all that counts. For former Notre Dame head coach, Lou Holtz, and former Florida State head coach, Bobby Bowden. First up, Lou Holtz. I have a question. How often do you tell people that you used to be a college linebacker when you were at Kent State? <laughs> Only when asked and I'm under oath. Other than that, I don't volunteer that. But you have to remember this. Uh, this was in the late 50s. And at that time, a, a guard would weigh 185 pounds. I mean, it, it, I was undersized, but not to the extent that uh, it would be comparable to a guy playing linebacker 200 pounds a day or maybe 190. You know, it's small, but it wasn't out of the ordinary at that time. So can we assume that you were not highly recruited coming out of college? No, no, no. I, I was not highly recruited, and I was not a uh, an excellent athlete. But I think what you have to understand is that I was born in Fallensby, West Virginia, a little town, and uh, predominantly Catholic. They needed people to fill up the first grade. I got the baptismal certificate, and they uh, asked my mother if I could go to school a year too early. And so I was basically two years ahead of my class. It hurt me academically. It hurt me socially, but it it hurt me uh, athletically as well. So I, I wasn't a good athlete, but I wasn't as bad an athlete as I appeared at that time. <laughs> what made you decide to go into coaching? Well, I hadn't planned on it. I didn't want to go into coaching. Uh, I didn't want to go to college. Nobody from our family had ever gone to college. My father had only gone to the third grade. Uh, I was bored in the cellar and during the Depression. There was, uh, we had one bedroom, I remember vividly, for my sister, myself, and my parents, a kitchen and a half bath. We, that was it. Two, two rooms and lived there for seven and a half years. Or, with no welfare, no safety net, no food stamps, but you know, we you jump by with what you had, not what you wanted. And so I had no intentions of going to college. I wasn't a very good student because, it, as I said, that's two years ahead of my class. And at the end of my junior year, my high school coach asked my parents said that I should go to college and be a football coach. He thought that I just had a natural ability to do this. Now, my mother made me take college prep, but the only school I could get into was a state school because in those days, if your father paid taxes in the state, they had to give you one semester in school at a state school. And so that's how 
I ended up. I, I did want to go. I'd worked uh, as well as played athletics, saved my money to buy a 49 Chevrolet, and my parents decided I'd go to college, and I decided I wasn't, so we compromised, and I went. That, that was a typical compromise with my parents, and they made me use the money I'd saved to buy the car to help pay for the education at Kent State. So that's how I got into it. All I ever wanted was a car, a girl, $5, and a job in the mill. Who could want more out of life than that? <laughs> Sounds pretty good. So how did you land your first uh, job as an assistant coach? Well, if you want to make God laugh, you tell him what your plans are. I I was uh, an officer in the Army, so when I got out of college, I went in the service, and uh, I was after the Korean War and before the Vietnam War, so you know it was a peacetime uh, service that I provided. It was just the way I was fortunate, I guess, to have my life work out, and I got out of, out of, out of the Army, and I was offered a job as an assistant football coach at Conneaut High School under a guy by the name of Earl Biederman. Earl Biederman had uh, just taken the job at, uh, I think it was Conneaut High School from uh, from Toronto, Ohio. And uh, he offered me a job as backfield coach and uh, teach history. And I was going to get married. And But my senior year when I had a knee injury and had surgery, they helped me, had, had me help me coach the freshman football team. Unbeknownst to me, my uh, college coach was in the Navy with Forrest Evasheski at Iowa. He had called Iowa and asked if, uh, if, if Forrest Evasheski would maybe take me under his wing for a year and teach me a different system and a different way to coach. And uh, so I was offered basically a graduate assistantship at at Iowa University. Now, they didn't have very many graduate assistants, and that was a unique thing. So it was quite an honor to be given to it. But no, I was going to uh, I was going to Conneaut High School, get married, and teach history, and be an assistant coach, and live happily ever after. Well, on July 8th, my wife told me she didn't want to get married. She wanted to date her old boyfriend. At, that was about 9:30 at night. By I don't know, maybe 11 o'clock that same evening. I had my good friend, Nevis Stockdale. We're in my 52 Ford Fairlane. Had a dive with to see if I could get the graduate assistantship. And uh, that's when Nevis made a great observation. He said, Beth and I had a love-hate relationship. I loved her. She hated me. And I got to Iowa, and uh, I got the graduate assistantship. I wanted to get as far away as I could. And we finished second in the country. And that's how I ended up in college coaching uh, rather than being an assistant coach in high school the rest of my life. So your wife was smart even back then? Well, she, was, uh, she wasn't that smart because she ended up uh, marrying me 53 years ago. <laughs> you bounced around from different colleges and assistant, and then your last assistant job was at Ohio State for Woody Hayes. What was Woody like to coach under? Well, first of all, I uh, I had to make all the stops along the way as an assistant coach and as a head coach. I I didn't get to go directly uh, elevated uh, over a step. I started out at small schools as assistant coach and 
kept getting promoted along the way. But uh, coaching for Woody Hayes, he was an incredible individual, probably well, the first or second most influential person in my life, uh, other than my my wife and obviously my uncle and parents. Uh, but he was just a, a great coach, but he's even more importantly a great human being who unfortunately didn't want anybody to know it. Woody's one of the special people in this world, but he didn't want anybody to know that he cared that much about people, did so many great things, but he had a faith and he had a belief in what he was doing, and he refused to compromise it, and I admire that and respect that, and I, I could not say enough great things about Woody Hayes, and I think if you find anybody that ever played for him or coached for him would feel exactly as I do. And your first college head coaching job came at William Mary, where he'd been an assistant. Had they remembered you or had they forgotten you by the time they hired you? No, what happened was uh, I had uh, gone to William Mary's uh, assistant coach a few years before, <clears throat> and when they, uh, the vacancy came available, the head coaching position came down to two people, myself and Marv Levy. And uh, me being like 27 years of age at the time, <clears throat> they hired Marv Levy, and I moved on and ended up at Ohio State. We won the national championship in 68. And so I still had friends at Wave & Mary. And <clears throat> so when Marv Levy moved into the NFL as an assistant coach, they called me and offered me the job. I mean, there was no interview. There was no politic. And, I mean, they just called me and said, today Marv Levy informed us he's resigning and we want you to be our coach and it's your choice. I mean, that's exactly probably the only way I could have gotten the job without an interview. I, I don't know, but that, it did work out. After William and Mary, you go to North Carolina State. It's like for a couple of three years. How tired did your wife get of, of the what seemed to be the constant moving around? Well, I think, first of all, if you look at the situation, uh, I, I inherited I took over six college programs. I never inherited a winner. I never failed to go to a bowl game by the second year at the latest. Uh, I guess I'm the only coach to ever take six different schools to a bowl game, win a bowl game with five different, and take four of those schools and finish in the top 20 in the country. And people say, well, why'd you move around so much? I never left the university, not one of those six universities that I leave under the same president that hired me. Every president that hired me left before I did. And when the gentleman hires you and he leaves, the situation becomes a little bit different, the working conditions. But our attitude is our home is not in the house. Our home is where we are, and it's about love and affection, and I think that one of the best things we did for our four children was move. They've never met a stranger. They know how to get along with people. They know how to make friends, and uh, they're very, very self-confident in their ability to get along with people, and I'm very proud of their success that they're leading in their personal and professional life. What made you decide to take the NFL job with the Jets for that one season? Well, I turned it down three different times, and I awarded the general manager 
asked me to come to New York and tell Mr. Edward and Mr. Hess personally I didn't want to coach there. And so I went up there to tell him no, and if you meet Mr. Hess, who was an incredible individual, and I ended up taking the job when it was my intention not to. And my wife was sort of surprised that I had taken the job after we had agreed that we would not do it, that our children were too young and living in a college atmosphere. I want to know, I, I have great memories of you being on the, the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. How did, how did that come to pass? Well, that was uh, one of my 108 goals was to be on the Johnny Carson show. <laughs> and we are playing Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl. And I had to suspend three athletes and scored 78% of our touchdowns. And the last time Arkansas played Oklahoma was in the 20s when Oklahoma had beaten them like 107 to nothing. It was triple digits, I know that. And Arkansas had never been to the Orange Bowl before, so this was a big game. But then when I suspended the athletes, they took me to court to get an injunction to play, and Bill Clinton, the attorney general, represented me, won the case, but I lost the team. We became the largest underdog there's ever been in a major bowl. And I still felt that without those three outstanding athletes, that we could win the game. And so they... NBC has a luncheon, and and they're a little bit upset with me because at that time, the Orange Bowl was the last game on New Year's night, so nobody was going to be watching the game because it was going to be so one-sided. But they have this huge luncheon, and I get up, and I'm in a good mood. I I like our team's chances, and I, I made some jokes and did some stupid little magic trick, and I did what I normally do when I speak. I said... How many of you would like to see me do this on the Johnny Carson show? And I would pick out a date, like March 19th. Let me see his show hands. Hey, well, that's great. I checked my calendar. I'm free then. If you'd write Johnny Carson, I'd love to be on his show on March 19th. Well, as soon as the luncheon's over, this guy comes up and said, uh, uh, my name, oh, good Lord knows, and I'm, I'm president of NBC. It's right after lunch. And I want you on the Johnny Carson show. And I said, well, you know, we might get me. I don't care. I want you on that, on that show. And that was, this was like December 29th. You can verify this January 7th, like nine days later, we win the game. I'm on the Johnny Carson. I think I'm going to be on the Johnny Carson show. And they fired. Uh, the president of NBC and uh, hired a new one. Uh, good, I'll think I've been a minute. But in any event, then the following year, we're going to be on, we're going to the Fiesta Bowl, which is NBC. Fred D. Cordova called and asked me to be on the Johnny Carson show. And he said, would you know magic trick? Because Johnny likes to do it also. He was a magician before. So I was on, I think, three different times. But uh, that is exactly how that uh, that, that came about, uh, uh, God, I can't believe I've forgotten those two names. Uh, but in any event, that's how it happened. I saw that you got offered the Ohio State job when they let Woody Hayes go. Did you ever consider taking that, or you wanted to be loyal to Woody Hayes? No, no. What, what happened on that, uh, we had just played in the Fiesta Bowl with 
played UCLA, ended up at a tie. Terry Donahue was a coach. And then uh, Hugh Hyman, who was uh, the athletic director at Ohio State, called me the very next morning. And he said, uh, you know, we, we had the problem with Coach Hayes. He said, what we want you to do is we want you to apply for the Ohio State job. We want to interview you. And I said, well, uh, that's, that's fine. Do you how many people you going to interview? He said, oh, well, probably only interview four or five, but you're, you're the number one guy. He said, you're, you're tops on our list, but we just want to go through the interviewing process along with four other people. And I said, you, I coached with you at Ohio State. He was the offensive line coach when I was a defensive backfield coach. I said, you know me, you know my family. I have been a head coach at William & Mary, NC State, and Arkansas. I have a track record. Now, what in the world are you going to find out in an interview that you did not already know about me or could find out about me? I said, I have a good job at Arkansas. We're nationally ranked higher than Ohio State. And for me to go through an interviewing process and if something were to happen, the people will in Arkansas would be irate and absolutely so. They think it's a better job in Ohio State and you know, I'm part of that and, and I'm gonna be loyal to the Arkansas people. Now if you want me to coach, you offer me the job, I will make the decisions. But I'm not gonna go through an application process of applying for it and interviewing. He said, Well if you change your mind, call me. I said I wouldn't sit by the phone and that was the only conversation I ever had with him. Now Let's go back to Minnesota. There's a guy named Glenn Mason. Has good success at Minnesota. He thinks he's going to get the Ohio State job. He played Ohio State. I recruited him at Ohio State. He thinks he's going to get it in. He goes and he interviews and applies for it, and he doesn't get it. A year later, he's let go at Minnesota. When Notre Dame came calling, was there any question in your mind? No, no, there there was no question in my mind. Notre Dame's the one job you wanted all your life. You know, I grew up and taught by the sisters in Notre Dame. Uh, both sides of the family were Catholic. Uh, when I started falling athletics, it was late 40s. Notre Dame went four years, never lost a football game, you know. Won the Heisman, Johnny, Lou, Jack, Leon, Hart. I mean, the list goes on and on, so. No, there was just something magical about Notre Dame that, uh, that, that to me was the epitome of the, the job. Yeah, I mean, you can't turn down Notre Dame because if you're Catholic like I am and Notre Dame offers you head coaching job, you got to take it or I think you're going straight to hell. Uh, there, there's no doubt about it. Uh, you don't justify whether you should go or not. Uh, and my feeling is this. The lady on the dome asked you to come, and you, you go. That's all. There's no, no questions asked. So, no, I, there was never. There, there's Notre Dame, and there's all other colleges up. Was that 88 championship season your best coaching job? No, I I don't think so. I, you know, you don't evaluate this as a coaching job. You get a bad one. No, I, it wasn't our best team. Our best team was 89. We were a better team in 89 than we were. We, we played seven conference champions in 89. Uh, I think it, uh, it just, uh, you know, I don't know. 
we went to ninth grade, January one bowls of sugar cut going to the fiesta and the road. So, you know, we had some pretty good teams there. I think it almost every year we went into November with a chance to win the national championship. And that's all you can ask. Uh, How did you get into broadcasting? You, you obviously have the gift of gab. Was that something that you looked at while you were coaching and think one day when the coaching no. was over? No, no, no. Man, no, with my looks, and I have a list and everything else. But what happened when I left South Carolina and uh, ESPN called and asked me to come up and uh, work ESPN2 one day a week? And I met with Norby Williamson, who was head of it, and he asked me, he said, you just come up, you'll work Saturday, and you know, you'll be able to go home properly probably Saturday night. It's just one day. And I, I'm thinking, okay, you know, one day, that, that's all right. First day I'm up there, I uh, they fired Trev Albers for insubordination. And they came to me. They said, we have a three-man set. Go sit in the middle chair today till we figure out who we're going to put there next week. I do not know Reese, and I do not know Mark. I'm going to sit in the middle chair, and I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And pretty soon I thought, I, I can't let them get away with that. That's stupid. That was 10 years ago. 10 years later, same three guys on the same shows, and this is the fifth anniversary of my last year. For five years, I said, this is my last year, but... But this one is. I, 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 you got to step aside and let the younger people move on. But they keep coming back to me, et cetera. But that's exactly how in the world I ended up. And I want to tell you, we have no teleprompter. We have no script. We have no rehearsal. Uh, and Reese is the best you'll ever be around. Mark is a very intelligent individual and uh, also a wonderful person. But we have a difference of opinion. He was a player as a coach. He made his suggestions. I made decisions. He showered after work. I showered before work. He uh, he signed a paycheck on the back. I signed it on the front. As I tell Mark, I'd love to agree with him. He's such a wonderful guy. But but if I did, we'd both be wrong. Was that Boston College game when they beat you ninety three? Your toughest loss. All losses are tough. What happens? You get to a school. And uh, you take it to the top, and that's what Dick Saban faces now, Urban Meyer. Losing is a disaster, and winning is a relief. You can't really celebrate it. But that, that's part of life. That happens. What is the secret to a long, successful marriage? I think trust. Being able to trust one another. I, I think that you have to have the same core values. My wife and I are completely different. She said uh, opposites attract and then attack, and that's probably true. But we, we trust one another. Uh, I would never lose the trust of my wife. And the other thing is that we have the same values. You know, that's about being an integrity, character, et cetera, but we are different. Uh, and what makes it so difficult to be married 53 years is a person you'd marry when you're 25. It's not necessarily the same person you'd marry when you're 45. 
the person you marry when you're 45 doesn't necessarily the same person you marry when you're 65. So you go through three different major phases, and you still stay together. That that's that's not real easy, but it's very gratifying. There, there's never been a question that our marriage would not last. I mean, you know, our attitudes there's no way out, so work it out. So we talked to Ricky Waters. We talked to Ricky Waters last week, and he said to us that you were a huge inspiration on him. Even though you suspended him for a game. You made him the person he is today. Also, you made him a better public speaker, and basically you helped him mold him into a great human being. Is that probably your greatest accomplishment is how much you've helped the athletes off the field? Well, I never felt I coached football. I felt I coached life. And I always felt that the same things I asked him to do to become a good football player would also make him a good husband, a good father, a good business person. But let me tell you this about Ricky Waters. Now, first of all, he's got a beautiful wife. He's one of the nicest people you would be. Ricky Waters, I believe, and I'm pretty sure, was the only child out of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He had a great mother and a great father. He had good upbringing. Ricky Waters was an exceptionally talented individual and very intelligent. He, uh, he never, ever did I have a problem with Ricky Waters on alcohol, drugs. He, he would have nothing to do with that. He, uh, he was hardworking. He's personable. The only problem with Ricky Waters was we only had one football and he wanted it all the time and he probably deserved it. But, you know, I, I, I got Tim Brown. I got Rocky Ishmael. I, I, I got I got some other good guys, Tony Wright, but uh, no, I, I can't take credit for that uh, for Ricky. The only thing that I told the football team for years, you give me everything you have for 11 years, and I'll be there to help you for the next 40. And thank God the 40 are almost up. But uh, I just uh, there's not a there's not a week go by that we get a couple of letters from former players that got a promotion, et cetera. But yeah, I never looked at it that way. I just, uh, you try to do what's in their best interest and you have rules and regulations and you teach them the value of making good choices. See, to me, life is nothing more than making good choices. Wherever you are, good or bad, are because of choices you make. If you choose to do drugs and drop out of school and join the gang, have five children out of wedlock, you're choosing to have difficulty in life and, because of that, don't blame me. Where does your sense of humor come from? Your wit? I think it was being smaller than everybody else and not as smart. And uh, people think bullying is a new thing in school. Good Lord knows that goes on. You learn to handle it. When I learned to disarm situations by having humor, but I also feel it's very important not to have a laugh at somebody's expense. I think it's okay to poke humor at yourself, but I don't think it's good to do it with somebody else. Is there one player that got away from you you thought, you know what, if I would have landed that guy, things might have been a little different? Oh, yeah. I, I landed him and got him in school and he was admitted. I don't know if you've ever heard of a guy, Randy Moss. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> Whatever happened. Yeah, he, he, he signed and was committed to us at Notre Dame and was admitted and got an altercation in high school and the dean of admissions at Notre Dame refused to, took away his admissions paper and, and we got him. Well, I'll tell you, Lou Holtz may be 80-something, but he, I think he's still going strong. He could probably last in that ESPN studio a little while longer if he wanted. ESPN gets those coaches and they don't let them go, these old guys. Ditka, yeah. Holtz. Yeah, they know a little bit about football, don't they? They do. After this brief break, we will be back with former Florida State coach Bobby Bowden. You are listening to Sports and Torts on TalkZone.com. Mm-hmm. 